You should have two sets of notes for tonight, the set that we're going to finish and then the set that we're going to start and maybe finish. We'll see. As you see on the screen and on the front of the handouts, this is evangelism for the, the faint-hearted, and this is our fourth session of 11 on that, and I have been taking the tact of looking at motivations to overcome our faint-heartedness in giving the gospel. So we've seen that there is a, a natural and understandable reticence to give the gospel because even though it is good news and really marvelous news, it starts with bad news that people need to be willing to accept. And without a move of the Holy Spirit, then the natural person is not willing to accept that. And so it might be and often is met with rejection, maybe ridicule or or even worse. So we're in good company if we are faint-hearted. The Apostle Paul was fearful. He asked for prayer so that he would give the gospel fearlessly as he should, is the way he said it. When he went into the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he was uh, so concerned that the Lord himself appeared to him to buck up his courage and said, Fear not and speak. I have many people in this city. So you're in good company. We're in good company if we're uh, hesitant. But we have to overcome that hesitance because it's a command of the Lord to be his ambassadors and to spread his gospel as part of the the great commission that he's given to his church. So in order, order to overcome that, then we need sufficient motivation to overcome being uh, hesitant. And I've sought to give that motivation a few ways. One is to remind us that God's glory is at stake here, and that giving the gospel and seeing people transformed by the gospel is a major means that God's glory is achieved in his world. And so we did a survey, really, of much of the entire Bible to show that God's purpose has always been the display of his character. That's what glory is. And that we were made to display that character, reflect him back to him, being made in the image of God. That sin has marred that image. And so the mirrors that we were intended to be are now cracked. They are now fogged. Uh, because of sin, so that when God looks at us, he does not see a clear image of himself. Salvation, then, is the beginning of a reclamation project for those broken and foggy mirrors. And God begins the work at the point of our salvation of conforming us, uh, restoring us into his image, conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus, Jesus Christ. That work is going to be finished. It will be done, but it's a work in progress. But it's all centered upon uh, and begins with the gospel and reception of the truth of the gospel by an individual. So what's at stake? The glory of God is at stake. It's the means or a major means by which God achieves his glory in order for us to be restored into what he originally created us to be. Mirrors reflecting him back to him. So the gospel is necessary for that. And then another way that I'm trying to motivate us to overcome our faint-heartedness is to go through and recall all that God accomplishes in the gospel itself. And that's why we've spent a couple of weeks, and now we'll finish off tonight with page 11, where we have a couple of charts there that show uh, the fulsome work that is accomplished in the good news of 
the gospel. And we've seen the first four of these six items that are in that list at the top of page 11. We've seen that God's grace delivers, rescues, saves from, and then creates something new with each of these. So if we have that slide. So God's grace rescues us from, delivers us from the persuasion of sin, gives us a new perspective, yielding new eyes and new ears. Regeneration. Uh, God delivers us from the the power of sin, gives us a a new heart, and that results in faith and repentance. So I've tried to drive home that we believe, that's what faith is, we repent, but we do that because God has first done a work on us. The work of God precedes the work of man. Regeneration precedes faith. You're not able to do any of these things as someone who is dead in trespasses and sins until God does this work upon upon the heart of the, the person. So regeneration gives gives life. So the effectual call, I've said, it gives us the desire to respond to the gospel. And regeneration gives us the power to respond to the gospel. That results then in believing or faith. And I've said that faith is accepting the gospel as really true. That is, it has an effect upon our lives. And so there's a change that takes place, and that's why repentance must always go with faith. You can't have faith without repentance. You can't have repentance without without faith. And then, in the gospel, justification is given, declared for those who have have come to Christ and believed and, and repented. And justification delivers us from the penalty of sin, gives us a new record, Before God, God the judge declares us to be righteous based upon the perfect righteousness of Christ, even though we don't have any righteousness of our own, but we have the perfect righteousness of Christ in the good news of the gospel. And then fourthly, adoption. Adoption rescues us from, delivers us from the position of sin. We were outside the family of God. We were alienated from God prior to Uh, embracing the gospel. So it delivers us from the position of sin and gives us a new family. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters, one with another, and we are co-heirs and brothers and sisters of, of Jesus, of Christ. And so we will be in the family of God as long as Jesus is. So that's good news. That'll be a long time. That'll be eternal. That can never change. That means... That God never disinherits his children. We're co-heirs with Christ, and if you're a child of God, you will never be disinherited. There will never come a time in the future when you cease to be a child of God. No matter what you do, no matter what's done to you, if you're a child of God now, you will be a child of God ten years from now. You will be a child of God into eternity. Now, that's a major part of what makes the gospel good news. Because it's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon you to obtain it. It's not dependent upon you to uh, to keep it. It is God who is doing this work. And God has guaranteed for those that are his children that they will make it to the end. You see that very clearly in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. That those that God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified... 
he also glorified. You notice that everyone who was in any of those categories also is in the other categories. No one is lost as the chain moves forward. So all of those who are predestined, all of them are called, the effectual call. And all of those who are called are justified. And all of those who are justified are glorified. Glorified is written in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet. Glorified, as we'll see tonight, doesn't happen until until later, until after you die or the Lord the Lord returns in the rapture. So how can it how can the Bible write it in the past tense? Well, in the mind of God, it's as good as done. That's why it's an unbroken chain cannot be broken, in fact. And so there is that deep security and confidence that the child of God should have that he or she will remain in the family of God for eternity. That is great news. But it's contrary to the way, did you know, contrary to the way most churches that call themselves Christian churches, what I just said is contrary to the way most teach. That the majority teaching in Christianity is that you can lose your salvation at some point in the future. That you could be a Christian at one point, but then 10 years later or some point later, something could happen where you forfeit that. So you don't have uh, what's often referred to as eternal security. And that eternal security is based upon the things that I just laid out. That it's upon the work of Christ, it's not upon our work. And he's given this guarantee, Romans 8.30 certainly shows that, but, but many other passages as well. Uh, but the majority believe you can lose it. Uh, I uh, attended a debate in 1997 in New York. Uh, I went to a seminar for that week, and then it culminated in a debate. And it was a debate between James White. Uh, James White has written some excellent uh, books on the gospel, but he, James White is also a guy who's a very skilled debater, and he can present the truth of Scripture, and he can correct those who uh, refute it in error. And so they set up this debate with about 800 people at this uh, thing, and James White was uh, debating a Roman Catholic apologist. An apologist is someone who defends the faith, and uh, Robert, Robert Sungenis is this Roman Catholic uh, apologist of some, of some note, written a number of books, and so James White and Robert Sungenis. And the debate was, uh, is can, can someone lose their justification? Can someone lose their salvation? And James White, of course, was arguing scripturally that no, that's impossible, but Robert Sungenis was saying yes. Uh, you can, and so they went. They went back and forth. At the end, they were uh, they had a Q and A, and they had announced they would have a Q and A. They'd set up uh, microphones in the aisles, and so I made a point to get a seat on the end, right next to a microphone. So as soon as the thing was over, people jumped up. I mean, I was right next to a microphone, and I was still fifth in line. <laughs> now that's a testament one to how slow I am, but also to how rude New Yorkers are. <laughs> got pushed around a little bit, but anyway, so I was fifth in line, but I, I did get my question in, and I asked uh, Robert Sungenis. Uh, he uh, had made the, tried to make the case that a child of God can be disinherited, and I said to him, I used to believe that, 
I grew up, many of you know, uh, in a church that taught that. Not a Catholic church, I was Pentecostal. My church taught that you could lose your salvation, that there could come some point in the future where you would lose it. So I said to him, I used to believe that until uh, I realized that in order to believe what you believe and what I used to believe, you have to deny one of two truths. You have to deny either that eternal life uh, begins uh, before you die, or you have to deny that eternal life is forever. One of those two. You have to deny that eternal life begins now, before you die. Or you have to deny that eternal life is forever. And I said I base that, those two truths, on passages like John 5.24. John 5.24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life. Now, notice the tense of the verbs there. He who hears has. It actually says eternal life. Has eternal life presently. And shall not, that is in the future, come into condemnation, but is in the present passed from death to life. That's Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and shall not in the future come into condemnation, but is in the present passed from death to life. So right there in one verse, you have both of those. Eternal life is a present possession, right? And you have to deny one of those two. That eternal life is a present possession or that eternal life lasts forever. And my question was, which of those do you deny? And he said, can you repeat that? <laughs> and so I did. And he said, well, yeah, both of those are true. Well, if both of those are true, you can't hold his position, right? He says, both of those are true. And I thought, wow, we've had a breakthrough here. And then he proceeded to say, but, there's always a but. He says, but uh, I've got like my driver's license. And my driver's license is a present possession. I have it. This was the illustration he used. But it has an expiration date on it. Well, yeah. And then I go, uh, so that just means your driver's license is not eternal. <laughs> okay? So you've just denied eternal life, right? So the point was, he can't answer that. The truth is, no one can answer that. The Bible teaches both of those truths, not just in John 5.24, but John 3.16, for that matter. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So eternal life is a present possession and eternal life lasts forever. If those two things are true, that's impossible then. That a person who is justified, a person who is adopted into the family of God, a person who is saved, delivered, it's impossible that that person could at some time in the future then forfeit that. God does not disinherit his children. Now, those are all things that happen simultaneously, all four of them. They happen when someone hears the gospel message and the Holy Spirit moves upon the heart of that person. So that the effectual call occurs, regeneration occurs, justification 
occurs and adoption occurs. They all occur simultaneously. There's not a sequence to those. They all happen in an instant. The person hears the message. God moves upon their their heart. They believe, and all of that happens. So if you've come to Christ, there's a point in time where that happened to you. All of those. And you became part of God's family. It happened to me at age 19, sitting in my bedroom, reading the Bible. And I came to I came to Christ and I asked him to forgive my sin and to be my savior and gave my life to him in repentance. Age nineteen. That was what, ten years ago. <laughs> so it's been a while now. So you've had a point in time, if you have come to Christ, you've had a point in time where all of those things happen. They all happened uh, simultaneously. But then there is this fifth component of the the gospel. And that is, you see at the top of page 11, sanctification. Sanctification. And sanctification begins at that point. But sanctification then continues and is presently going on in the life of the person who belongs to, to Christ. So sanctification delivers from, rescues from the practice of sin. It gives us a new life. So you and I, if we belong to Christ, we are now being rescued from, delivered from, practicing sin. And it's an ongoing work. It's a work that began at the point of your salvation. And it will continue until the point of your death or the Lord's return. Until glorification. And in between, God is at work. Removing us progressively from the practice of sin. That word sanctification means to make holy. To set apart. Holy means set apart. And so to be sanctified. Sanctification is the process of becoming set apart. The process of becoming holy. The process of becoming like Christ. But notice I keep saying it's a, it's a process. So here's a, a definition from the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. So if you want to Google that sometime, uh, if, you, if you want just a, a marvelous statement of the faith, that's a marvelous statement of the faith. Second London Baptist Confession, 1689. It uh, mirrors almost exactly the, the famous Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646. So just over 40 years later, Baptists put together their own Confession of Faith. In terms of salvation, it's virtually identical to the Westminster Confession, but Baptists cleaned up the Westminster Confession in terms of, in particular, baptism. But it's a great uh, statement statement of faith, and in particular on the issue of salvation. And with regard to sanctification, it says this. That sanctification is that gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which he delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him.
That gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which he delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. That's a full definition of what sanctification is. That's what God is at work doing in your life now. But I want you to notice that it's something that is ongoing. It's something in which he is enabling us to live lives that are pleasing to him in the present. And it involves, quote, our responsible participation. Now, in the effectual call, in regeneration, those were, you didn't do anything for that. Remember, you were dead in sins. And so in regeneration, you're given spiritual life. You did nothing. You couldn't do anything in order to get that. You respond to it in faith and repentance, but you couldn't do anything. But now in sanctification, God is at work, and we have a responsible work to do as well. And the Bible teaches that you have both of those going on in the life of those who belong to God. He's at work, and we work with him in obedience in order to produce this uh, sanctifying effect. So you have a lot of verses that talk about God's work. Uh, Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began will bring it to completion. You also have a number of passages that speak of God's work and then God's work and our work as well in tandem. Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2 and verse 13. Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God who works in you. God is at work in you, but what is God at, at work in you doing? God is at work in you so that you will, that is you desire... And then you act upon those good desires in order to fulfill God's good purpose. God's at work. He works in us. And we desire and we choose, we act to accomplish his good purpose. You see both of those. That's sanctification. Uh, Colossians 1.29. Colossians 1.29. Eh, let's go with Colossians 1.28 first. It's our church's theme verse. Uh, We proclaim him, Christ, teaching and admonishing every person so that we may present every person fully mature in Christ. That's Colossians 1.28. That's a great church verse, isn't it? We proclaim him, teaching and admonishing everyone so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. But then the next verse, verse 29, says this. Paul, who wrote it, says, to this end, I labor. Labor is agonizo, I agonize. I work hard at this, says Paul. To this end, I labor, working, though, with all his energy that so powerfully works in me. You see both of those going on? You've got God's work in Paul and Paul obeying and Paul 
gladly and willingly cooperating in that work. And that produces then this progressive making holy, separating the Christian from the world and worldliness to God. Sanctification. All right. Now, how does that how does that go in the normal Christian life? How does that go? Starts at the moment of salvation, continues for the rest of your natural life or until the Lord returns. Until you're then perfected at glory. But you still sin. And I still sin. So if you were to draw a chart, you would have a chart that starts with salvation and then there's sanctification. And the goal of the sanctification is ultimately to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so it's a it's an upward line where we're moving toward Christ likeness. And it would be great if it were a steep. It would be great if it were even not steep, just straight. I'd take that. But it's neither of those, is it? It's not steep nor straight. That what it is, is that yes, indeed, it's, it's moving upward, but it is sometimes one step forward and two steps back. It's up and down and up, but it's, it's moving. It's moving up. And God is at work in that. And that we are to work with God in that. Because of our sin nature, there are times in which we don't obey, and therefore those are the blips on the... Sometimes those blips can last for a good period of time. And God will not allow a believer to continue to wander. God's going to accomplish this. Hebrews chapter 12, he will discipline He disciplines those he loves. So if someone is continually then sinning as a child of God, then God is going to do this work to call them back. He's going to discipline them. He's going to bring things into their life that are going to cause them to come out of the fog that they're in, to refocus on Christ, repent, and renew their walk with him. Hebrews 12. There are... Occasions in which a true believer continues to wander and God says, my testimony of my name has been harmed enough. This is somebody who claims my name and yet they're not living up to my name. So he might take them home. First John 5, there is such a thing as a sin unto death. First John 5. There were people in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the church at Corinth who were receiving the Lord's table, but doing so unworthily. That word unworthily, of course, we're all unworthy of Christ. We're all unworthy to participate in the Lord's table every time we do it. So please understand what it means is unworthy means in a manner inconsistent with who we say we are. That very same word that's translated unworthy in 1 Corinthians 11 is used in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, where Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live lives worthy of the calling that you have received. Live lives that are consistent with the calling that I've just laid out in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. So when you see that word unworthily, then, in 1 Corinthians 11, 
It's taking the Lord's table, but doing so with lives that are inconsistent with what we profess. And the Corinthians were doing that. That's why when we take the Lord's table, if you've been here for when we do that, we'll be doing it again November 11th in our 930 hour. But when we do that, before we take the Lord's table, we take a a time to confess sin before the Lord. It's a serious enough matter that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, as a result of this, some of you are sick and some have, it says, fallen asleep. That means, what do you think that means? I mean, I, I see the falling asleep piece every Sunday. Okay? It's not that kind of falling asleep. Some have died, some are sick, and some have died. God has killed some people as a result of this. So, when someone's in the midst of sinning, and I, as their pastor, come and say, hey, what you're doing, or what you're failing to do, and your obedience to the Lord is not consistent with what you profess, I don't come to that person and say you're not saved. I say you're not living like you're saved. But I've got good news for you. If you are saved, God's going to discipline you. That'll prove you're saved. And if that doesn't work in God's good timing, then he'll kill you. I'm just here to cheer you up. Okay? <laughs> but you see, God, God cares about this intensely. And the person who can live in an unworthy and inconsistent manner with impunity is someone who should be afraid. The person who is not being disciplined as they wander from the Lord, that person should be afraid. The person who knows the Lord, when they are wandering from the Lord, they have the Holy Spirit chiding them all along, convicting them all along, ultimately bringing them back, in a few cases taking them home. This is a work that God does. It begins at salvation. The line is jagged but the trajectory is upward in the life of those who belong to him. Now, I want to make uh, clarify some things that people teach erroneously about this. Notice how I've talked about all of this. I've talked about just this is the way the Christian life goes. This is the way the Christian life goes for every Christian. And people obey at different rates, and they grow at different rates and all of that, but this is the way it goes for every Christian. Me, you, every genuine Christian, this is the way it goes. Here's what that means. There are not classes of Christians. There are just people who have come to Jesus. He has begun his work in them, and now that work is is ongoing. So there are not a class of Christians that you could call the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian. Now, why am I telling you this? Did you know there are people who teach that? That's like a really... That's like a really big teaching. And uh, Dallas Theological Seminary uh, has taught that for decades, erroneously, that there's a category of people called the carnal Christian and a category of people called the spiritual Christian. They get it from a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 3. Our very own Dr. Combs 
has written a scholarly article on this very issue that if you care to read it, I or he would be happy to pass it, pass it on to you. But there are not these categories of people, carnal, spiritual, permanent categories. Now, here's the real danger that comes out of that, this idea that there is this just category of a carnal Christian then leads to another false teaching. And that is that you get saved. You might be carnal. That word carnal just means fleshly, worldly. You might be carnal. And you're still a Christian because you profess Jesus, say they. There's no upward trajectory. You're carnal. And unless there comes a second point somewhere in the future in your life, they, they usually call this a crisis point, a spiritual crisis where you dedicate yourself to Christ. Unless that happens, you'll remain as this carnal Christian. There has to be this second thing that happens. You get saved, and then sometime later, you get sanctified. You start sanctification. If that doesn't happen, then you're just a, a carnal Christian. Do you see what that means? It means sanctification is optional. You could just be a carnal Christian. As I was growing up, surrounded by a lot of people over the years who had been imbibed this kind of teaching, I would hear that. So-and-so is just, you know, it's just, just a carnal Christian. But I'm telling you, there is no such permanent category. of There are Christians who act carnally. That's what sin is. So we all sin. But there's no such thing as this permanent category. So what I'm telling you is, you get saved, and then you start the trajectory of sanctification. Jagged though the line is. What Dallas has taught, and what many people have taught for decades, is that you get saved, you have this period of time, and then there's a second thing, an act of dedication, a crisis point that occurs, and then you start to do this. Now, lest you think I make this up, I have this book by Charles Ryrie. Many of you might know that name, Charles Ryrie, Ryrie Study Bible. Overall, a good study Bible, and he's written a ton of very helpful books over the years. You can't see this, uh, but I'll show it to you if, you if you want. And those of you who want to see it, I'll assume you don't take my word for it, but that's okay. If you, you think I'm lying about it. Um, but this is exactly the way he shows it pictorially. He shows salvation, that exact salvation and sanctification exactly that way. Namely, there's the cross, you get saved, there's this flat line, and then there is uses the word act of dedic- dedication. Sometime in the future that occurs, and then you got your jagged line. Then it starts after you've had this subsequent act of uh, dedication. And you know what that does in our churches and to people's Christian lives? It means that pastors keep preaching for people to have these acts of dedication. Many of you have been in churches where that's the kind of the weekly thing. And how do you make your act of dedication? You, you do what? On Sunday, you, you walk the aisle. So we came up with a way to do this. Walk the aisle, lay your all on the altar, make your act of dedication. And then you can 
you can begin this uh, this process. And I I just realized early on that a lot of what churches beg people to do are things that should have begun at the moment they were saved. At the moment you were saved, your values changed, your priorities changed, your allegiances changed. To be sure you're a sinner, to be sure we struggle with sin, to be sure it's going to be uneven. But all of that has changed. And at the time you came to Jesus, you dedicated yourself to him. When you came to him, you believed him as your savior and your Lord. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, when you come to Christ, you're coming to the master. You're coming to the Lord. So you're bowing your heart and your life before him and you're giving that to him. And there's a change from that point on. For me, from age 19 on, there's a change that takes place. So sanctification is not two types of Christian. There's not a disjunction between Savior and Lord. And that's what some people teach. You receive him as your Savior. You make him your Lord sometime later. Now, he was the same person, both Savior and Lord, at the moment you came to him. So if you care to jot down uh, Romans 8.13, Romans 8.13, Romans 8.13, which speaks about this process of sanctification and the need to, I'm quoting now, mortify, put to death the deeds of the sinful nature. That's what we do in cooperating with God in sanctification. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And then this all culminates, top of page 11, in glorification. And glorification delivers us, rescues us, saves us from the presence of sin and gives us a new home. No more sin, no suffering. So beam me up. I mean, are you looking forward to no more sin? No more struggle with sin. No more people around you who are sinning in an environment of sin. I mean, it's just so foreign. It's hard to, it's just hard for us to get our minds around. But there's coming a day when you will be like that and everybody around you will be like that. And we will be and we will live as we were intended to be and live originally. Glorification. All right. Now, applying all of that, the gospel applied. Middle of page 11. In the effectual call, in regeneration, in justification, in adoption. In all of those, you have got past grace. Past grace, that's all stuff that happened in the past when you came to Christ. Sanctification is this ongoing process. That's present grace. And then glorification is future grace. Now, you've got these six components of the gospel, all of them absolutely necessary to the good news. But it's an unbroken chain. 
Bottom of page 11, the gospel is a seamless whole, the parts of which can be distinguished but not separated. So it's a mistake to associate any one aspect of the gospel with the whole. For instance, the past aspects of the gospel, calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, evidence themselves in the present, sanctification, and they'll culminate in the future, glorification. Conversely, one does not have proper hope for the future without assurance of God's work in the past. So it is accurate to say this. I have been saved, and I am being saved, and I will be saved. There's a past, present, and future aspect. And all of these are seen in what I quoted earlier in Romans 8.30. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. All three of those are past, but then glorified is in the, in the future. Titus chapter 2 has all three aspects as well. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, it, the grace of God, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. That is the past. It teaches us in the present and we await his appearing in the future. It means that the chain from the past to the future cannot be broken by anything in the present. Now, guys and gals, that line is golden, not just because it's mine, but because it's true. The chain from the past to the future cannot be broken by anything in the present. Nothing done in the present, either by you or to you, will negate what God has done in the past and then you could add and what he will do in the future. All right. Now, that's the gospel. That's the good news. How many people need that? That would be everybody. And the reason I have belabored that is in order to motivate us to overcome our faint-heartedness because we see the beauty of the gospel, we see the comprehensiveness of the gospel. And so we are willing to overcome that hesitation in order to see people come to, to Christ. So who all needs it? Page 13, that's your next handout. That would be everybody. And I asked the question at the top of page 13, to whom do we give the gospel? Now, when I ask that question, to whom do we give the gospel, the answer you may give, it would be everybody, and that's true. There's no one who's outside the need of the gospel. But that's not the way I'm asking the question. What I want to do in these pages is to give us a full picture of who it is we're giving the gospel to. A full picture of the audience who's receiving the gospel message. We have a clear picture of who the people are that we go to in our circle of influence to give the good news good news message. And then, in fact, starting at the end of this, we will start to transition to how do I make connections then with people who are like we're going to describe here? How do I make connections with those people in order to give them the gospel? But what are the people like that we're giving the gospel to? Who is it that we're giving this to? 
Top of page 13. We have seen that God's purpose for evangelism, as with all things, is to bring him glory, to display his character. Specifically, the gospel is the means by which the mirrors we were made to be are repaired since we're all broken by our sin. We've also seen the beauty of the gospel message and all that it accomplishes in the life of one who embraces it. These two issues, why we give the gospel and what the gospel accomplishes, should provide motivation to overcome our faint-heartedness. We also need to understand to whom we give it. That is, what is the condition of those to whom we go with the gospel? What effect has sin had on their lives such that the gospel is the answer? We've seen that due to sin, people are broken and foggy mirrors who fail to reflect the character of God in the way they think and talk and act. What do those cracks look like? How has sin fogged up the mirrors that we were made to be? So I want to take some time for us to think about that. Because what that's going to, in our remaining time today and then going into next week, I want us to take some time to think about what it's like to be lost. See, if you're saved, if you're rescued, if you've been delivered, if all of this has happened to you, praise God. But now let's remember what it's like to be lost. What it's like to not be delivered, not rescued, and the condition that people are in. What does the Bible teach about that? The people we go to have three things that I've got in the following pages. Three things we know about them. Middle of page 13, I say, we go to people who know God. Now, just that might not sound right at first, but just stay with me on it. When we go with the gospel message, we are going, according to the Bible, I'll prove it here in a bit, we are going to people who know God. Romans 1 says that. We have it for you here. What may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain. For, because, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. You see what's being said there? Everybody has a message from God about God. Every person... Every last human being has been given a message from God about God in what he has made. And in what he has made, his power, the fact that he could make it, is seen. His divine nature. You have the created world. And then, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, and you've got questions, God has answers. How do we know God exists? One of the ways we know God exists is because everything else is contingent. Everything that's contingent has to have something that is non-contingent in order to explain its existence. So the fact that you see the creation suggests that there must be this one who is divine outside of that, his divine nature. That's clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That includes everybody in that passage. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo says this, Every person, whether a first century pagan or a 20th century materialist, has been given a knowledge of God and has spurned that knowledge in favor of idolatry in all of its varied manifestations. 
All therefore stand under the awful reality of the wrath of God and are all in desperate need of the justifying power of the gospel of Christ. Notice this line. We will never come to grips with the importance of the gospel or be motivated as we should be to proclaim it until the sad truth has been fully integrated into our worldview. Look at Doug Moo. You're faint-hearted. How are you going to overcome your faint-heartedness and be motivated? Because you understand that this is the condition of people. It's the condition of people not just 2,000 years ago, but right now. It shows up in different ways, different manifestations, but it's the same root issue. And we will never come to grips with the importance of the gospel or be motivated to give it as we should until that has been fully integrated into our perspective. This universal knowledge of God is spoken of in Psalm 19. Famously, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So God has made himself known. All people, the people to whom we go, know God. If they know God, well, then that should be the end of it. Okay, good. They know God. Except, bottom of page 11, there's a problem. Although we go to people who know God, it's also true, secondly, that we go to people who do not, notice this, want to know God. This is what the Bible teaches about the psyche of the unbeliever, the person outside of Christ. They know God. They were made to know God. God has made himself known. But the problem is they don't want to know God. He's there, but they don't want him around. We're going to see, actually, they don't want him around. So, you know, you just think of somebody that you know, but you don't want around. Maybe it's at a family gathering. Hopefully not at church. Some coworker. You know them, but you don't want them there. And that's what the Bible teaches is the way it is with people in God. They know God. They don't want to know God. One of the effects, top of page 14, of the entrance of sin into God's originally good world is that people no longer live for the purpose for which they were made. And so what should be music to our ears, namely truth, is something we don't want to hear. You know, this music that's made in Psalm 19, and their voice going out to the to the world and the music of the spheres, as one hymn, hymnist called it, that ought to be music to the ears of, of all God's creatures as they look at his creation and then they praise the creator. That all ought to be the case. But in fact, it's something we don't want to hear. Romans 1 says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who do this. Suppress the truth by their wickedness. Notice, suppress the truth. Hold down the truth. Keep it down. Don't don't let it invade your mind. 
Don't think about it. Suppress it. You have it because it's been made plain. That's what the next two verses say. We saw them on the previous page. But it's suppressed. It's held down. Until one is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they suppressed, hold down the truth. So to whom are we going? We're going to someone who doesn't like to hear truth. In fact, Romans 1 goes on to say this. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Here's what it means. By nature, we don't like to think about God. So to whom are we going with this marvelous message that we've been describing for three weeks? We're going to people who by nature don't want to hear it. So we are going to broken, foggy mirrors. But what does the fog and the cracks look like? It looks like holding down the truth, so much so that I don't like thinking about God. This is the reason that all of us have heard more than once that one of the things you never, ever talk about in polite company is religion. I can talk about who I slept with over the weekend. I can talk about who I got sloshed, how I got sloshed. I can talk about what movie I went to see. I can talk about everything in the world, but the last thing I want to hear about is the God who made me. Think about how weird that really is. Why is that? It's part of the crack in the mirror. It's part of the fog obscuring an accurate reflection of what we were made to be, holding down the truth and not wanting to think about God. To an unbeliever, God is like repressed memories. You know, that phenomenon where somebody's had something bad happen to them and they they put that away in the recesses of their mind. They don't want to call that up. They don't want to think about that. It's a real thing, but it's a real thing in the psyche of the unbeliever as it relates to God. God is like a bad thought, a bad memory to those outside of Jesus. So I don't want to talk about him and I hold the truth about him down even though he's all around me. And I do everything I can to deny it. I do everything I can to ignore it. But God keeps sticking himself in my face and keeps sending these annoying, really annoying Bible-thumping types around. And they want to tell me about him, and I'm tired of hearing it. Okay, so I'm just telling y'all, this is one of the reasons why people are loaded when you come. Because this is what's going on. I don't want to think about God. And I don't want you or anybody else coming around disturbing my bliss in keeping God out of my life. Bottom of page 14, because of willful neglect of and suppression of truth about God, the Bible says all people then are without excuse. Nobody can truthfully ever say to God, you didn't show yourself to me. The fact that one has breath to make that false claim is evidence of God. Okay. The mere ability to accuse God is evidence of God. You wouldn't have the breath to do so if it were not for him. The fact that anyone can consider the world around them and know that God is renders all people without excuse for suppressing the truth they know. Every person who has ever concocted a theory like evolution to rid himself of God as the creator will one day stand before the one whom they denied and be defenseless before the true and living God. The word that is translated without excuse in verse 20 is this Greek word apologia. We get our word apologetics from it. It means to defend the faith to those who are skeptical of it. 
At the end of verse 20, it's the negative form of that word, meaning without an apologetic, without a defense. People outside of Christ will stand before him without a defense because he has given them light that they suppressed and don't like to think about. Now, did you all know that's what the Bible teaches? That's the deal with people. People know God. They've been given information about God, every per- enough information so that they are accountable to God for believing it and responding to it. But no one does that, naturally. In fact, by nature, no one wants to think about that. They suppress it, they hold it down. Because of all of that, are left without an apologetic, without a defense before God. So to whom are we going? We're going to people who know God, but people who don't want to know God. And thirdly, that it means we're going to people who are fools. Wow, that's pretty harsh. I don't recommend, as we get further into our series here, and we talk about giving the gospel to people, I will never say, go up and say, by the way, you're a fool, but I've got good news for you. Okay. So why am I using the word fool here? I'm using the Bible's word. That's why. I'm not using it to be un- try to be unkind. This is actually what the Bible says about it. We're going to people who are foolish, who in their denial of God think and talk and act foolishly. Foolishness in the Bible is failure to use what you've been given for its purpose. The opposite, wisdom, is using what you've been given for its intended purpose, applying what you've been given for the purpose for which it was given. So the Bible says in Psalm 14, one, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Why? Because he's failing to use what he's been given for the purpose for which it was given, namely to know God. God has given all of this information about himself. God has designed that for the very pur- purpose of the person receiving it, seeing what it, seeing it for what it is, and responding to God accordingly. But by nature, people don't do that. And so that's why it's foolish. It's failure to use what we know for the purpose for which that knowledge was given. God has given evidence all around the individual, but he denies that. He holds it down. He's a fool. He's not ignorant. Ignorant means you don't know. So nobody's ignorant of God. Everybody knows. He's not ignorant and not necessarily intellectually deficient. In fact, he might be quite intelligent. But the Bible says he's foolish because he fails to use what God has given for the purpose God gave it. So, verse 22 of Romans 1 says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In an ongoing way, every generation of humanity does the same thing by nature. Now that's who we're going to. People who know God, people who don't want to know God, and people who talk and speak and act foolishly. How does that foolishness manifest itself? And this is what I want to pick up on then next week. Think about the things that God has given and the purpose for which he has given them and then compare that to how the world uses those persons and things. Do you guys see what I'm saying? People live as fools. They live as people who use what God has given them for one end 
And they distort that and misappropriate that and use it for something else. And I want us to think about how people do that. There are just some very obvious and ubiquitous ways, many, many ways, endless ways that people do this. I've got some of them in the pages that follow. We're going to see some of those next week. And then just to tell you where we're going. Having seen that, we're going to reflect upon the pain that all of that causes for people. The hardship, the difficulty that it causes for people. And God, here's the good news for us as ambassadors for Christ. God uses all the stuff they mess up as one major means for us to be able to give them the good news, the solution to what they've messed up. They can't live according to their own worldview. It messes stuff up. And people caught in the mess, some of them then become willing to listen because they're in such pain. We're going to see that beginning next week and how we then can enter into that, how we can see where people are, how they've messed things up, how it's affected them, and then speak a solution to them. Let's pray and ask God to go with us this week, all right? Our Father, we thank you for the message of the good news of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we've heard it and received it and embraced it and it's made a profound difference in our lives. Lord, we hate the struggle with sin. We look forward to the day when we no longer sin, when we are no longer around the presence of sin. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we say, with your people of all ages. But in the meantime, we want to carry out your will. We want to live as people who belong to you and who by our lips and our lives show that you've made a difference, a profound difference. And because we belong to you, we are people who love others. We love them so much that we want to see them come to you. We want to see them out of the suffering and pain that they've caused in their rejection of you. So, Lord, we want to be good evangelists. We want to give the good news, which alone is the solution to the problem of sin and its effects. Help us this week to be that. Help us to show, display your character and be willing to enter indoors that you open in order for us to speak your truth. Grant us safety, we ask you, and bring us back this Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.